focus on headline. All right, let's take a look at what major issues are making the headlines today on Focus on Headline. For this, joining us in the studio today, we have our reporters in Kwanzaa and Chung Yin. Guys, welcome back. Good evening. Hello. Good evening to you, Soa. The yes. first, it's the first time I met you, I believe, here on Arirang. Uh, I was a sportscaster. Mm -hmm. You were a weathercaster. Right. <laughs> Let's talk weather. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk weather. So I thought you were the one starting with some random stuff today. It is random. Uh, yeah, but it was not. It was relevant. <laughs> it is very relevant, not so random, but uh, it's worth kicking things off with some weather updates because uh, this Thursday, uh, so far, the coldest day of the winter season. Uh, you saw in the capital Seoul where the temperatures dropped to negative 14 degrees Celsius. And if you look at the apparent uh, temperature, uh, how it felt because of the wind chill and things like that, it's like negative 22, I believe. Uh, the cold snap is expected to continue into the weekend uh, as late as uh, Saturday morning from what I understand. Uh, so uh, let's get more on the weather conditions we had today and uh, forecast in the, the coming days as well. Sure. So to start with the most uh, recent, right now in the capital Seoul, it's minus 9.5 degrees. So uh, if anyone is heading back home, please be bundled up. And Korea is currently under the effect of an Arctic cold snap with cold wave alerts issued across the country. The capital Seoul started off the day at minus 14.4 degrees Celsius. But uh, the wind factor made it feel like minus 22 degrees. So that was the coldest day so far this season. Uh, it was worse in other parts of the country like Gangwon-do province. In Cheolon County's Imnam-myeon, temperatures dropped to minus 25.3 degrees. And also below minus 20 degrees were recorded in Hwacheon and Hongcheon. Uh, also down south in Jeollabuk-do province's Muju city's Seolcheonbong, minus 20.7 degrees were recorded. And this cold snap is expected to continue into the weekend until Saturday morning. Uh, let me give you the morning lows for tomorrow or Friday. Seoul is going to kick off at around minus 15 degrees Celsius. Gangwon-do province is Chuncheon at minus 18 and down south in Daegu minus 10. And uh, the daytime high in the capital's hole is expected to be at minus 7 degrees. Now snow is also expected to continue in the west coast regions where heavy snow alerts remain. On and off snow is to continue until tomorrow. And uh, Chungcheong-nam-do province's Hoyan region and West Honam regions expect up to 20 centimeters of snow. Jeju-do Island's mountainous regions up to 50 centimeters more snow. And uh, speaking of Jeju, dozens of flights uh, were canceled, not only due to the snow, but also heavy winds. And as of 5 p.m., heavy snow warnings remain in parts of Jeju, along with heavy wind advisories in, on almost the entire island. So mm -hmm. uh, please uh, make sure to check the latest cancellations of flight schedules. Yeah, I think uh, as of the last time I checked was sometime around uh, 1 p.m. Uh, in the afternoon where uh, the airport's internet what is it, Jeju International Airport, 72 domestic flights were delayed. Uh, four uh, inbound uh, international arrivals, sorry, three inbound international delays and uh, two outbound international flights. So that's a large number of flights being canceled, uh, sorry, delayed because of the high winds and the uh, Mount Hallasan, 
uh, saw something like 53 centimeters of snow accumulated so far. You have all these numbers in your head right now? I Don't <laughs> ask me how I know all of this. I, it's just, you know, things that I do, look at news all throughout the day, and certain numbers just kind of uh, remain in place. But uh, things are uh, pretty heavy, right, heavy snow right now in Jeju. I know we have a lot of listeners out there. A uh, number of trails uh, also closed. Uh, roads are also uh, seeing restriction. And from what I understand, in some of the roads in Jeju, they're only a allowing cars that have chained up uh, tires mm-hmm. uh, and so make sure that if you have any, if you plan to drive any in those areas make sure you chain up your uh, tires not to mention a lot of the agricultural facilities uh, they're expected to see some damages because of the high wind and the heavy snow so uh, practice caution and here on Arirang Radio we will have some of the reporters if we get any updates or emergency broadcasts uh, we'll give you guys the updates on that uh, speaking of updates boy th- it took so long and I felt bad I I heard, Yane, you were waiting hours for the results of this. Uh, Yesterday, we were talking about how the rival parties were set to vote on next year's uh, budget at uh, 10 a.m., and uh, they were supposed to make the announcement at 2 Mm p.m., and we were waiting, and we were waiting. 4 p.m. came, still no results of this, but uh, finally, it's been set. Uh, They approved the 656.6 trillion won in uh, government budget, and uh, this does come after that dramatic agreement reached between the rival parties on Wednesday that we talked about. There was a a, a bit of a, a budget cut so that the country does not see further deficit and uh, not see any more bond issuance. But uh, Yang, nevertheless, we finally got the updates here. Let's get that. Sure. So concluding the standoff over the national budget, even in the interim session so far, the ruling and opposition parties finally approved the government budget this afternoon. So as we covered uh, this week, uh, the government proposal submitted in September was worth 656.9 trillion won. Uh, the final budget approved just this afternoon by the National Assembly was around two hours ago. That was 300 billion won less than the proposed amount. So this is the second consecutive year uh, following last year where the total expenditure converted to net decrease in the process of National Assembly review. Also following last year, this uh, this year marks the second longest period recorded past the legal deadline stated in the Constitution to approve the budget plan ever since the National Assembly Advancement Law was enacted. The approval was made on December 24th last year, and it is 19 days later uh, the deadline at this time around. So the main increases in the budget uh, include a net increase of 600 billion won in the R&D field to address employment uncertainty, support next generation and foundational technology research, and expand infrastructure, that including research equipment. The Semangun project was also uh, one of the areas that saw an increase of uh, 300 billion won, primarily for supporting businesses and attracting private investment. Now, one 1.1 trillion one for highways, 1.19 trillion one for new ports, and 600 and, uh, sorry 261 billion one for a new airport were included. A one-time budget of 300 billion won was also allocated for local voucher program. Now, the uh, the vouchers uh, can now be used in more places going forward, and the total issuance amount was increased from 4 trillion won to 5 trillion won. Now, other budget increases uh, came from supporting the livelihood of the people, including uh, SMEs and young population, improving public transportation condition, and reinforcing the arsenal to 
to strengthen Korea's national defense. Now, remember the reason why, one of the main reasons for why the main opposition Democratic Party was refusing to pass the budget for 2024 was because of the massive cut in the R&D sector. Uh, by the ruling government. And so the agreement was put in place because of the 600 billion won in the increase, uh, whereas there were some uh, cuts in other areas. But although it was, it doesn't offset the cuts made by the, the ruling party still, though, uh, this is, I think, the, the middle ground that they were able to see here. Uh, in the meantime, the other major news, there was a lot of uh, speculations as to who was going to lead the ruling PPP as they are currently uh, running on an emergency leadership committee. One name has been popping up quite a bit. Uh, we're talking about the now former uh, Justice Minister Han Dong-hoon, uh, who has agreed to earlier this morning to take on a uh, major responsibility uh, as the chairman of the emergency leadership committee ahead of the April general elections. So I guess a lot of people did see this coming uh, or for some a bit of a surprise considering uh, the situation right now. But so fill us in on the latest here. Right. I think it was exactly a week ago when we talked about uh, the different candidates yeah. uh, who could become the uh, leader here. So following the, the PPP's transition into an emergency leadership committee after former leader Kim Gi-hyun resigned last week, the party has been in deep discussions who to choose as interim leader and agree on the recommendation of Justice Minister Han Dong-hoon, according to the party's acting chief and floor leader Yoon Jae-ok this Thursday. Yoon announced at an urgent press conference at the National Assembly that the party decided to appoint Justice Minister or former Justice Minister Han Dong-hoon as chairperson of the PPP's emergency committee, stressing the chair has the grave responsibility of leading the ruling party ahead of the general elections next year. He also said that the chair should meet the people's expectations for change, innovation, and the future, and be fit for promoting political and cultural reforms. You noted that Minister Han will be the youngest and most novel or fresh, uh, whichever you, way you want to translate it, novel chair to achieve this. And um, he will be the youngest, as he says, but he's 50 years old, so not like too young. I would well, I mean, have to say. There's young considering politics. <laughs> yes, right? yeah, yes, yeah. of course. Now, the ruling party seems to have high expectations for Han, uh, currently the number one favorite future political leader among conservatives. And he's also said to be quite popular among uh, the younger generations, as well as centrists. And uh, the minister had been among those speculated to be on the list of potential leaders. And earlier this week, uh, he actually hinted that he would accept the role if he receives a request by the PPP. And now as Han ex accepted the position and also with that, um, he also said that he's going to step down from his post as Justice Minister, of course. Uh, he is to officially start his role on the 26th this month. The PPP's National Committee has to approve the nomination, but this is said to be just a kind of formality. And uh, now that they have a chair, we also need uh, the finalization of the members of the Emergency Committee, and that's to be finalized by the end of the year so that the party can really start fresh in the new year. So the selection for Han Dong-hoon is an interesting one because if you remember leading up to the presidential elections, 
uh, two years ago, right, uh, when uh, President Yoon Suk-yeol was able to win, who was the uh, the party chief at the time? Uh, it was Lee Jun-suk, and Lee Jun-suk was kind of uh, took the helm there to lead the 20s and 30s, mm-hmm. right? And that was the big thing, and I, I think that was the huge kind of momentous uh, event in the political campaign where they were able to, the PPP was able to garner so much of the votes from the 20s and 30s and so forth, and now we're kind of seeing a shift, right? Almost two years into President Yoon's uh, uh, office, uh, we're seeing sort of low un- unemployment rate for those in the 20s and 30s, and uh, it, they're they're struggling because of the, the, the financial status right now. And so the goal leading up to the next year's general elections is again to target the 20s and 30s, and even maybe the 40s, which is why Han Dong-hoon uh, being again 50 is... Mm. The new thirty in in <laughs> politics, I would I would say, uh, and so not surprising that he's put in there. But there was a rift amongst the uh, the party members. So the more traditionalists were pushing for Han Dong Hoon uh, to lead the emergency leadership committee, whereas the non traditionalists uh, within the PPP were saying, number one, Han Dong Hoon doesn't have the political. Uh, resume. He doesn't have the experience mm-hmm. to lead the party right now. And uh, there were also others uh, others basically saying that he's more fit to lead the election committee come next year for the general elections rather than the, uh, the emergency leadership committee. And so there was a bit of a rift. And I know they had some meetings in place to gather opinions and so forth. And so a lot of people are saying because uh, former Justice Minister now, Han Dong-hoon, uh, has always sort of been pegged as the maybe the next PPP presidential candidate. Mm. This might be the next step. And, uh, of course, who knows what happens come uh, maybe three years down the road. He might be uh, leading the People Power Party as the next presidential candidate. So we'll keep a close tab on this. Again, less than four months away now until April's general elections. In the meantime, the finance ministry announcing that the government intends to relax regulations on the capital gains tax for stock investors. Uh, we did briefly talk about this yesterday with Professor Yang jun Uh The move is aimed at averting a potential year-end selling frenzy uh, and the resulting in the market turmoil. Yeah, let's get the latest on this. Sure. So the country currently imposes the tax on shareholders who own stocks valued at over 1 billion won, or that's uh, 766,000 in U.S. dollars. And according to the Ministry of Economy and Finance, uh, the government has opted to increase this threshold to 5 billion won. So in its press release, the ministry explained that the decision was made uh, taking into account the prevailing capital market condition, where we are seeing sustained high interest rates as well as escalating uncertainties home and abroad. Additionally, it aims to mitigate potential year-end market turbulence triggered by investors selling stocks to avoid tax. The ministry plans to amend the regulation within this year with the changes uh, slated to take effect from January 1st, 2024, following the cabinet approval. Uh, of course, uh, the big criticism in regards to this is the fact that the, the very rich are getting the, the tax cuts uh, and that uh, they're, you're losing out on a massive tax revenue. And uh, we're already seeing a loss in tax revenue over the past few years because of, uh, the I guess, the, the slow uh, real estate market at this time. But uh, we'll see what happens here. Uh, in the meantime, another big money here. Uh, South Korea's banks vowing to provide $2 trillion won, uh, to small business owners and self-employed in a bid to share more of their profits with the people. So well, let's get the details of this. 
Sure. South Korea's commercial banks will provide 1.6 trillion won for an interest refund campaign and 400 billion won for a support program for the underprivileged. The total 2 trillion won, or roughly 1.5 billion U.S. dollars, will be coming out of 18 banks, including Sinan Bank and Hana Bank. The cash refund will be allocated to small businesses and self-employed interest payment borrowers to support them amid high interest rates and rising costs of living. The amount of support each bank provides depends on each bank's net profit this year. It'll be around 10% of annual profits. Earnings have been rising by that 10% last year on the back of a sharp increase in interest income due to rising market rates. And uh, banks were criticized for enjoying bonuses while others suffered under high interest rates, which is uh, why the banks had been called on to make contributions to society. In fact, uh, combined profits of Korea's four major commercial banks uh, earned from lending activities last year came at 33 trillion won or $25.3 billion, which is up more than 20% on year. Financial Services Commission Chair Kim Joo-hyun welcomed the move, saying small business owners were the ones impacted the most due to rising interest rates before their situation could even improve after the COVID-19 pandemic. Also, Financial Supervisory Service Governor Lee Bok-hyun praised the measure, saying not only is the 2 trillion won support plan large in size, but it's also meaningful that it refunds interest directly to borrowers who have dealt with the high uh, interest rates. He also underlined that banks cannot grow alone without a solid customer base. And all of this has been, uh, you know, especially um, difficult for people due to the key interest rate as well as the central bank held its key interest rate at uh, 3.5% for uh, the seventh consecutive time recently. And that amid a slowdown in growth and as well as the inflation. Yeah, so uh, during the so-called post-pandemic era, there was a couple of industries that got a lot of uh, criticism, high criticism. Number one is the oil companies. Uh, so despite the fact that everything is sort of returned to normal, uh, they're still cutting, uh, the OPEC plus uh, nations are still cutting production, right? And they're, the consensus is that they're trying to make up for the losses that they incurred during the height of the pandemic when the oil prices were at record lows. But if you look at the statistics, all the, the uh, oil companies actually made record profit over the past few years now. You look at the numbers for like Saudi Aramco, it's ridiculous. And then the banks, right? So you have high interest rates and they're feeding off a lot of the interest rate, but the deposit uh, interest that you get if you put money into the bank mm-hmm. is not as high as the amount that they take if you borrow money from the bank. And so that was the big criticism. They have no problem lending money and getting a whole bunch of interest. But when they take your money, they're not willing to give you the same level of interest. And so there's been uh, a lot of not just criticism from the public, but the government, uh, the South Korean government has been really uh, pushing at the banks, and which is why we're probably seeing measures like this. Uh, in the meantime, the Korea Electric Power Corporation, or KEPCO, announced that the unit price of the fuel cost adjusted charge for the first quarter of next year, this will remain at 5.1 per kilowatt hours, uh, which is the same as the fourth quarter of this year. Yane, let's get more on this. 
Yes. So previously, the government and uh, Capco increased the rates for the first and second quarters of this year and kept it unchanged for the third and fourth quarters. Now, last month, the authorities uh, raised electricity rates only for industrial usage uh, or for large-scale business users by an average of 10.61 per kilowatt hour. However, considering factors such as the unit price of the fuel cost adjusted charge, Capco's cumulative deficit so far and inflation, the authorities have decided to freeze electricity rates for the first quarter of next year. Now, if we break down uh, this electricity uh, electricity rates, uh, they are composed of a base fee, power consumption fee or standard fuel fee, uh, climate and environmental fee, as well as uh, fuel cost adjusted charge, a very difficult name, of course. Uh, but among these, the fuel cost adjusted charge is determined by the uh, 25 first of the month before each quarter, and it is designed to flexibly reflect changes in fuel costs over the previous three months. Now, its unit price is uh, usually determined within the range of plus uh, or minus uh, 5.1 per kilowatt hour, and the maximum level of 5.1 per kilowatt hour was already in effect uh, at the moment. For the first quarter of next year, uh, the unit price was calculated at minus 4.1 per kilowatt hour due to the decline in international fuel prices. However, considering Capco's accumulated deficit and the fact that fuel costs had not been adjusted while rates were frozen, Capco decided to maintain the unit price at 5.1 per kilowatt hour. Now, upon this decision, the government asked Capco to diligently adhere to its restructuring efforts for its financial stabilization. Let's move on here. Uh, this is not surprising because this has happened every year for almost 20 years now. Uh, the UN General Assembly passed a resolution on North Korea's human rights issues this week. So uh, again, uh, this is something that has happened for 19 straight years now. But uh, what was the main focus for this year's adoption? Right, seeing hardly any improvement in terms of North Korea's handling of human rights, the UN General Assembly decided to pass a resolution on Pyongyang's human rights violations for the ninth, 19th straight year. The decision was made by consensus at the General Assembly in New York Tuesday local time, following the adoption at uh, the third committee handling human rights and social affairs last month, meaning this week what we saw was the final approval. Among many abuses of human rights by the North Korean regime, one of the major reasons for this year's adoption comes on the back of growing concerns for the safety of North Korean defectors who were forcibly repatriated from China. The resolution led by the European Union this year highlights very serious concerns over these repatriations and had strongly urged all UN member states to respect the, quote, fundamental principle of non-refoulement, especially in the light of a resumption of cross-border travel. South Korea and the U.S. have in particular voiced those concerns, especially on the back of reports of hundreds of North Korean defectors in China having been forced back to the North after the lifting of pandemic-related closures. The resolution also invites the UN Security Council to take appropriate measures to ensure accountability, and uh, that could include a referral to the International Criminal Court and sanctions against those most responsible for human rights rights crimes. 
Uh, meanwhile, South Korea co-sponsored this resolution in continuation from last year. Uh, that was actually the first time in four years what we saw last year, right. because uh, since the UN administration takes a stronger position in dealing with North Korea's human rights issues, whereas before, during the Moon administration, for some years, we did not see Korea co-sponsor the resolution. Yeah, again, I mean, uh, we're seeing a lot of movements uh, focusing on the human rights situation. And uh, earlier this year, as you know, uh, there's been a uh, UN Security Council meeting in regards to human rights of North Korea. And usually in the UN Security Council, what they talk about is the ballistic missile uh, provocations or nuclear developments by North Korea. But they were saying that uh, they're the use of the money for nuclear and missile developments directly impacts the livelihoods of the people. And so they got into human rights issues, even at the UNSC. Uh, and speaking of ballistic missile provocations, I have to say, this is probably, in my recent memory, the, the harshest rhetoric uh, from Kim Jong-un uh, in my recent memory, because usually the harsh rhetorics come from Kim Yo-jung, although there was some uh, rhetorics from her. Uh, we had the North Korean state media report saying that uh, North Korean leader Kim Jong-un uh, stated the launch of the intercontinental ballistic missile this week on Monday uh, showcased his unwavering determination to not hesitate in initiating a nuclear attack uh, in response to any nuclear provocations from any adversaries. Yain, uh, give us more details about his remarks. Of course. So Kim Jong-un's remarks uh, came during an event on Wednesday where he com commanded the second red flag company under the General Missile Bureau for the successful launch of the solid fuel Hwasong-18 ICBM on Monday, as reported by the KCNA. Now, according to this report, Kim asserted that the missile launch served as, quote, a clear demonstration of the offensive counteraction mode and the evolution of the nuclear strategy and doctrine of the DPRK, emphasizing their readiness to launch a nuclear attack without hesitation in response to enemy provocations with nuclear weapons. Now, Kim had said earlier that the missile launch this week uh, showed what he might do if, quote, Washington makes a wrong decision. This launch marked North Korea's fifth test firing of an ICBM this year, and five testings in a year is actually the highest number ever recorded in a single year. North Korea said the missile flew about 1,002.3 kilometers for 4,415 seconds and reached a high point of 6,518.2 kilometers before landing in the East Sea. Now, experts said if it had been fired on a normal trajectory, it could have flown more than uh, 15,000 kilometers and hit any part of the continental United States. The missile launch happened when South Korea and the United States were advancing their nuclear strategy against threats from North Korea, of course. Now, in the last week's meeting of the nuclear consultative group, South Korea and the U.S. decided to complete making guidelines for their shared nuclear strategy by mid-2024. And they also planned to conduct joint military exercises simulating North Korea's nuclear attack. In a separate commentary, the KCNA condemned the plan as an, quote, 
exercise for a nuclear war to invade the North. It claimed such drills will be a clear declaration of war and that the North will make sure to show that its warnings are not just empty words. Yeah, I think right now North Korea, how far they've gone in their nuclear and missile uh, program is number one, they have the Hwasong-18, they have the solid fuel uh, ICBM, right? So it speeds up the preparation time. The Hwasong-18, again, capable of going 15,000 kilometers. It could reach the uh, U.S. mainland. The only thing missing right now, I think they've already completed the ballistic missile technology right now. The only thing missing is being able to miniaturize their nuclear warhead. Uh, we've been talking about uh, whether or not North Korea is going to be conducting a seventh nuclear test for the past few years now. And what a lot of the experts have been saying is that they're, the reason why they're not conducting any nuclear tests is not because they're afraid of any kind of UNSC sanctions or anything like that. It's because they're unable to showcase a new kind of nuclear technology. Mm -hmm. And the final piece of their puzzle is miniaturizing their nuclear warhead. If they're able to finalize this, they'll definitely test it. They'll showcase this. They'll announce this. And they'll say that they're able to put this ICBM, uh, embed the uh, miniaturized nuclear warhead into the ICBM. And the threat is there. And so, which is why we're watching very closely at their nuclear and the missile development at the same time. We talked about how usually the mm -hmm. bad cop, good cop, uh, you know, the Kim Jong-un, kind of the, the quiet one, Kim Yo-jong, surprisingly, uh, the one with the harsher rhetoric. So I believe she's also made some remarks since the launch of their Hwasong-18 uh, Hwasong intercontinental ballistic missile. Uh, what did she say? Yes, so Kim Yo-jong was actually one of those who've responded uh, pretty aggressively with a harsh condemnation. Uh, when the UN Security Council convened discussions at the UN headquarters in New York on the 19th upon a request from the United States. So today, uh, Kim Yo-jong expressed in her statement released by the KCNA a strong regret, saying, quote, I strongly condemn the convening of a public meeting itself at the coercive demands of the United States and its followers, raising issues dis uh, despite it being just a matter of the sovereign rights of the DPRK. I have to say I'm a little bit disappointed with the wordings there. They're usually <laughs> harsher than that. Uh, we were talking about uh, Kim Sung. Uh, yesterday at the UN General Assembly, his remarks were uh, not as creative as he used to be. <laughs> uh, let's stay with North Korea here. The top three diplomats of South Korea, the U.S. and Japan, having issued a joint statement against North Korea's recent provocations. Uh, so what did this statement say? Right. South Korea's Foreign Minister Park Jin, U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken, and Japanese Foreign Minister Yoko Kamikawa jointly condemned North Korea's recent back-to-back -back military threats in a joint statement this Thursday. And it was regarding the Hwasong-18 intercontinental ballistic missile on Monday and a short-range ballistic missile the previous day on Sunday. The statement said North Korea continued threats pose a, quote, grave threat to the Korean Peninsula, the region, and international peace and security, while undermining the global non-proliferation regime. With that, uh, the three diplomats urged Pyongyang to abide by UN Security Council resolutions and stop all activities that violate them. They also added that the launches that came unannounced threatened civil aviation safety and maritime traffic. 
On this occasion, the three sides also denounced the North's human rights violations. Uh, this was something that uh, USJ mentioned before because they noted that they these uh, human rights violations are also directly linked to the country's weapons programs. And that because if the regime is spending a lot of money on its mass destruction weapons, that at the same time means that they are not doing enough to feed their people, of course. Yeah, I mean, we saw historically, if you look at some of the data, right, uh, they were saying that ever since uh, Kim Kim Jong-il, the father of Kim Jong-un, sort of put in more sources into defense and the the nuclear development and missile development, you also saw a huge sharp decline uh, in, or I should say it's the huge rise in poverty rate Mm -hmm. uh, amongst the people because the vast majority of their budget or whatever the budget comes from, I mean, it comes from different sources. They're exporting different things and they're selling things legally. They're stealing cryptocurrency and things like that. And the source isn't going to the people. It's going to the the development of their nuclear and missile program. Right. And the the dilemma is uh, whenever the international community uh, imposes sanctions against North Korea, the regime is going to try to, you know, spend what's left on its weapons. And then that, again, could mean more poverty for the people. Mm-hmm. So that is also a kind of dilemma because the, you know, the international community and the UN Security Council does not want the people to starve. They just want the regime to stop building on its missiles. Yeah, so that's mm-hmm. like the double-edged sword, yeah. right? So mm-hmm. like all these sanctions that are put in place, whether it be UN Security Council resolutions or U.S. sanctions or EU sanctions or even, you know, we've been seeing South Korea's unilateral sanctions in place. Although it's sort of targeted towards the regime and maybe some of the companies and certain entities and things like that, who's ultimately suffering? It's certainly not the high-ranking officers or the officials in Pyongyang. It's the everyday people in North Korea that are unable to get in the goods. And so there's people are saying that ever since the sharp increase in number of sanctions, they're also seeing probably what they're saying is more people starving at this time than mm-hmm. compared to the early 90s during the, the so-called arduous march. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So uh, that's uh, still, it needs, you know, more measures again. Yeah, yeah. But uh, in separate news, I also want to mention, while the foreign ministers of the three countries discussed North Korea, uh, diplomatic officials from South Korea and Japan have resumed a high-level economic consultative body. And this is significant because this has been reactivated for the first time in eight years. Uh, So that was the 15th session held here in the capital, Seoul, uh, led by Kang Jae-kwon, Deputy Foreign Minister for Economic Affairs, and his Japanese counterpart, Keiichi Ono. And also part of that, the finance ministers of Seoul and Tokyo held conversations this Thursday via a teleconference to talk economy. So we always see uh, that the U.S., uh, uh, South Korea, and Japan always seem to be eye-to-eye on things related to North Korea, but because we had, you know, not really good ties between uh, Japan and uh, South Korea for the past years, that's why we didn't really talk a lot about economy. Mm -hmm. And uh, now with these consultative talks uh, having been resumed, it looks like we're going to see more cooperation, uh, economic cooperation, also economic security policies uh, concerning supply chains, as well as key technologies and regional cooperation and multilateral cooperation as well. Yeah, I mean, because not only do we see like a normalization of 
just uh, just bilateral ties between South Korea and Japan, but we saw a normalization of the economic ties, right? Uh, earlier this year, uh, Japan finally putting South Korea back on this white list of preferred trading lists, right? They, they, they lifted the, uh, the trade exports, uh, sorry, the, the export restrictions on some of the key materials uh, for semiconductors and things like that. Uh, and so we're seeing that. But the problem, again, goes back to being able to talk to North Korea, right? So when you're seeing teams forming with the three allies, good to see, again, uh, three sides seeing eye to eye here. But you're also further isolating North Korea and them going, well, looks like there's going to be no room for dialogue. And mm -hmm. so we're going to continue the uh, missile provocation. And so unless there is some sort of change where the three sides goes, all right, listen, we have to treat North Korea like a little kid here. We have to feed them something, give them something in exchange, and maybe they'll come back to negotiating people. Because U.S. is saying that they're willing to talk without any precondition. South Korea is kind of going, well, you know, we want to talk, kind of. And Japan is going, we want to talk, too, because we want the all the uh, the adopt, uh, uh, abducted uh, Japanese back. Mm -hmm. But North Korea is going, no, because you guys are not offering anything. And so what do you offer North Korea for them to bring back to the negotiating table? I think that's the thing that they have to start discussing. That's that. But speaking of improved ties between the two countries, uh, we're going to have to see how this is going to pan out uh, when it comes to South Korea, Japan ties. But the Supreme Court on Thursday, they ended up upholding, upholding two appellate court's rulings that ordered Japanese companies to compensate uh, South Korean forced laborers into wartime labor during Japan's uh, colonial rule. Yane, uh, tell us more about this. Yes, so the decisions were handed down by the top court on two damages suits filed against Mitsubishi Heavy Industries Ltd. and Nippon Steel Corp. Uh, between 2013 and 2014. Uh, before this, in 2018, the Supreme Court had already confirmed compensation orders for the same companies in response to lawsuits that began in 2012. Now, in one of the latest two rulings approved by the Supreme Court, uh, Mitsubishi was ordered to pay hundreds million to 150 million won to each of three forced labor victims and a victim's family member to compensate for their unpaid work. Now, in U.S. dollars, the range is from $76.7,000 to $115,000. These victims, uh, who were reportedly forced to join the Korean Women's uh, Volunteer Labor Corps and work at an aircraft plant in Nagoya in 1944, started illegal action in February 2014. Now, in another case, uh, the top court uh, upheld a ruling from a lower court that ordered Nippon Steel to pay 100 million won each to seven South Koreans who were said to be victims of forced labor and unpaid work during the wartime period from 1942 to 45. These seven individuals filed their lawsuits in March 2013, but unfortunately, all of them have passed away since then. In 2018, the Supreme Court ruled in favor of uh, forced labor victim, victims, uh, stating that the 1965 treaty between South Korea and Japan aimed at settling colonial-era issues does not terminate individuals' rights to claim damages. Now, for that, Jap uh, Japan asserts that all rep reparation matters were resolved in the 1965 treaty, and at this time around, the Supreme Court stated, quote, until the unanimous decision of the full bench in 2018 on the forced labor 
victims or their families, there existed an impediment that practically hindered them from exercising their rights against the defendants. Following their uh, recent ruling, Im Suseok, the foreign ministry spokesperson, said the victims will still be subject to the government's third-person reimbursement program, where a foundation under Ministry of Interior and Safety raised funds through donations to reimburse the unpaid labor for the victims who were ruled eligible to receive Japan's compensation. Now, earlier, the Seoul government has already introduced a plan, but some victims have declined to accept the government's proposal. Yeah, so you have to understand why the victims are uh, refusing to receive the funds, right? It's not being paid by the Japanese, but is being paid mm-hmm. by the South Korean government. And I find it interesting, Nippon Steel, they're able to, I don't know if you heard the notes, uh, Nippon Steel bought out U.S. Steel for like $14 billion uh, earlier this week. It's not like they have no money. They got a lot of money, mm. uh, but uh, they're, they're not making any action. And from what I understand, the Japanese government and uh, the companies are completely ignoring the Supreme Court ruling here, uh, knowing that, unfortunately, there is very little that can be done at this time. Guys, I want to thank you guys very much for uh, joining us this evening with your reports. If I don't see you guys, happy holidays. (gasps) Merry Christmas to you guys. And uh, we'll see you guys again. Thank Thank you. You can listen to Korea Now with me, SJ Lee, by downloading the Arirang Radio application or tune in online by visiting www.arirangradio.com. So make sure you tune in Mondays through Fridays, 6 p.m. to 8 p.m. Korea time.